and poll taxes. Because of its racist election law and its one-party stranglehold over the South, Nazi lawyer Heinrich Krieger even wondered whether the Democratic Party would, like the Nazis, make the party an organ of the state. Whitman doesn't argue the Nazis cut and pasted U.S. immigration and citizenship laws into their own legal code. The influence was more subtle. United States law, according to Whitman, served as welcome evidence that race consciousness had already begun to shape the law in a leading Nordic polity, and that the winds of history were blowing in their direction. With the blood law, however, the influence was more direct. At that June 1934 meeting that eventually led to the Nuremberg Laws, the participants repeatedly discussed America's racist legal codes, with the Nazi radicals in attendance the most enthusiastic in their approval of the American example. During the meeting, Justice Minister Franz Gertner showed off a memo cataloging American race laws. Almost all American states have race legislation, he said, according to a transcript of the meeting. What most excited the radicals was that certain states criminalized miscegenation, which is exactly what the Nazis would do a year later. The more traditional lawyers at the meeting were skeptical of the idea, arguing that criminalizing such behavior would be impossible. Judges had too much discretion to determine who was and wasn't Jewish. German law, until then, notes Whitman, had been based on clear and unambiguous concepts. The traditionalists wanted that feature to be preserved. Otherwise, the rule of law would become the rule of men. The radicals replied that U.S. law allowed judges to determine who was or wasn't colored, even though race couldn't be scientifically determined. Roland Freisler, who would later become president of the Nazis' People's Court, stated that the American model would suit us perfectly. If the U.S. could institute explicitly racist legislation, then so could Nazi Germany. What the American example showed, writes Whitman, was that German judges could persecute Jews even without legislation founded in clear and scientifically satisfactory definitions. Whitman's most terrifying observation may be that some of the radicals thought America's obsession with protecting its whiteness went too far. One Nazi writer bemoaned the unforgiving hardness of the idea that an American man or woman who has even a drop of Negro blood in their veins was considered black. Even the Nazi blood law limited its targets to people with at least three Jewish grandparents. Then again, there were Nazi hardliners who pushed for a more expansive classification in which just one Jewish grandparent defined you as a Jew. In his conclusion, Whitman reminds readers of the dangers of a politicized legal culture. He argues that both the United States and Nazi Germany embraced legal realism, the idea that the law should evolve with the times as opposed to legal formalism, where the law constrains the designs of ambitious legislators. Under legal realism, Germany fell victim to the totalitarian state of Hitler's Nazism, while the United States moved toward a Faustian bargain between the New Dealers and Southern segregationists. The same realistic legal philosophy that could be invoked to defend the bold economic experiments of Franklin Delano Roosevelt could also be invoked to defend the racism of the Southern Democratic Party, Whitman notes. When the politics is bad, he writes ominously, the law can be very bad indeed.